Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A shooting inside Canada's parliament in 2014 sparked a national debate about gun ownership that's still intensifying. As medical professionals stage protests calling for stricter gun laws, we examine how the discussion has similarities to the fight about guns across the border in America. And many governments are starting to require businesses to report their gender pay gap, how much less women are paid than men for similar work. It's becoming clearer just how much parenthood matters to that calculation. We have a listen to the data. First up, though. This week, Algerians flooded into the streets to celebrate a moment that was unthinkable two months ago. After two decades in power, 82-year-old Abdelaziz Bouteflika resigned as the country's leader. The news followed almost daily protests by hundreds of thousands, which began in February. Years of corruption and mismanagement have left the oil and gas-rich country with a big deficit and 1.4 million people unemployed. But it's been a long time since Mr. Putuflika actually led the country. He suffered a stroke in 2013 and has been an invalid ever since. It's a clique of military leaders and oligarchs, widely known as Le Pouvoir, that's really calling the shots. Further protests are expected tomorrow, with Algerians now demanding the removal of Le Pouvoir. On April 2nd, Abdulaziz Bouteflika handed his letter of resignation to the head of the Constitutional Committee, and it was a rather sad scene, actually. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. You normally see Bouteflika dressed in nice three-piece suits. In this case, he was dressed only in a robe, sort of looked like an old man who was woken up in the middle of the night and could barely even hand the letter to the head of the Constitutional Committee. Who is Mr. Bouteflika? Well, Bouteflika uh, is a member of the Old Guard. He was actually passed over once for the presidency in the 1970s, but was given the job uh, two decades ago. And what he's most known for is leading Algeria out of a very dark period. Starting around uh, 1991, it fell into a bloody civil war that took the lives of around 200,000 people. And Algerians really credit Bouteflika with bringing the country out of that. But since then, he's kept the country closed off to foreigners and, and foreign investment. He hasn't reformed the economy. He rules with a cabal of oligarchs and generals, which is commonly known as les pouvoirs or the power. And they really keep a tight grip on things. They restrict political speech. They don't allow for free media. It's even illegal, nominally at least, to gather in large crowds. And in 2013, he suffered a debilitating stroke, which left him unable to walk and unable to speak, really. And since then, real power has really been in the hands of uh, those generals and businessmen and a few politicians. So he's been in power for two decades, six years of that time, arguably unable to rule. Why is he being pushed out of power now? Well, I think people got fed up with the idea of this doddering old man at the head of the country. I mean, the country's not doing all that well. Unemployment 
is around 12%. The economy could be doing a lot better than it is. I mean, Algeria is rich in oil and gas. And people just got fed up with this absurd farce of having an invalid as their president. So this is just the will of the people being expressed then? Yes, uh, certainly tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people even have come out into the streets to demand Bouteflika's resignation. At the same time, you could say he was also pushed out by other members of Le Pouvoir, um, especially the army chief, Ahmed Gaid Saleh. And some people see this as a sort of preemptive strike by the general against other members of Le Pouvoir sort of an attempt for the army to remain the arbiter of Algerian political life. But but all of this has precipitated um, an, an election, a change of leadership in one way or another. I mean, where does this leave the country politically? There's meant to be an election in 90 days. I mean, that's the way forward according to the Constitution. We'll see if that actually happens. The opposition is in no state, really, to mount an effective campaign. They're not all that united. Uh, the people who come out for protests... Some are liberals, some are Islamists, some are trade unionists. What they actually agree on, apart from wanting Bouteflika to go, is not exactly clear. Well, if, if this sort of power behind the throne still has, has the upper hand and, and Mr. Bouteflika simply disappears from the scene and the opposition is messy and, uh, and disorganized, will an election change anything? I mean, that's really the question, right? I mean, and, and Algeria, you know, as much as it seems like this is the end of something, this is really the beginning of the real battle for Algeria. And this is when I think things get quite risky um, because you have the protesters moving closer to the real centers of power and you have the people in power now struggling to maintain their grip and also struggling to come out on top uh, within their sort of the ruling cabal. Then you have the protesters who can't seem to agree on much um, and it's not really clear how they move forward or how they organize or how they choose a leader to represent them when uh, free and fair elections actually are held if they are held. So there's all this unrest and protest, which we're expecting to see again this week. Amid all this, do you think the situation is stable? Do you worry about how things play out from now? You have the generals and the ruling officials warning of bloodshed, but it's telling that only they are warning of potential violence. The protesters have stayed remarkably peaceful during all of this, and I think they will continue to do so. So, look, this country as hundreds of thousands of people coming out into the street every week, it'd be tough to call it stable. But I I think it's unlikely that it would slide back into civil war. There are enough people in the country who remember how bad the civil war was, and I don't think they will let Algeria slide back into that type of violence. So what about outside Algeria, in the region, in the world more generally? How How important is this moment? It's important. I mean, the West sees Algeria as many things, but one of them is uh, as an ally in the war on terrorism, and they'd obviously like that to continue. Um, It's also an export of oil and gas, mostly to Europe, and so they don't want to see that get cut off. And then Algeria in the region is important. This is a region that has been buffeted by revolution within the past decade, Um, And so other leaders look to Algeria, and some of them perhaps think, um, oh, this could happen at home. At the same time, that seems somewhat unlikely. Algeria is a bit of a peculiar case. It's seen as a bit of an outlier in the Arab world, so I don't think there is much risk of contagion here. What do you think ought to happen to kind of bring things back to an even keel? How, How do you think things should play out from here? 
Well, I think what you need to see is probably a caretaker government um, oversee a process that moves Algeria to a much more open system. And the first step in that process is probably a national conference because you really need to get all of the different groups within the opposition together to talk things over and to figure out exactly what system works. The first step really is the opposition needs to come up with someone who speaks for them and who can negotiate a sort of way out of this with the old guard. Roger, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. After the tragedy of the shootings in New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern moved quickly to change the country's gun laws. Today I'm announcing that New Zealand will ban all military-style semi-automatic weapons. We will also ban all assault rifles. In short, every semi-automatic weapon used in the terrorist attack on Friday will be banned in this country. Elsewhere, such legislation is more problematic to introduce, and not just in America. Its neighbor to the north is not a country known for gun violence, but a controversy over handgun ownership has been playing out across Canada. This week, an organization made up of trauma surgeons, emergency room physicians, nurses, paramedics, and other health staff held small-scale protests in cities across the country. They're one of many groups calling on the government to enact a complete ban on handguns and assault weapons. This growing debate over gun laws was prompted by a shooting in the country's halls of power. October 22, 2014 was a Wednesday. That was the day that the gunman stormed Parliament. Madeleine Drohan is our Canada correspondent. And the first thing that the MPs knew was they heard some gunshots. They thought it was construction going on on the centre block of the Parliament buildings, and it wasn't until there was return fire by the security guards and by the police that they realized that Parliament was under attack. They were in a corridor, and at first they realized that they were actually closer to the gunfire, so they reversed course and they ran away to offices nearby where they holed up, and the whole place was in lockdown for five or six hours. The gunman had killed a soldier on his way into the building. None of the parliamentarians was hurt. The attack started a conversation in Canadian politics that has been intensifying. The debate has gained urgency now because there have been several shooting incidents since 2014. The one that really brought this to prominence was last summer in Toronto. There was a gunman who went out on a shooting spree and he wounded something like 13 people and he killed an 18-year-old and a 10-year-old. And that was followed up by the city council in Toronto saying that it would ask the federal government for a complete handgun ban in Toronto. And then Montreal followed that up. So that really sort of picked up the pace of the discussion about uh, guns in Canada and handguns in particular. 
As in America, the issue is deeply divisive. Among those opposing changes to gun laws, one of the members of parliament who was forced to run for safety in the 2014 shooting. Anyhow, thank you for calling me back. I know sure. you've been very outspoken on this. I know you've got an e-petition. I was just looking on this. One of the conservative politicians that left their caucus room was Michelle Rempel, who's a, a young MP from Alberta. Right, like I was in the House of Commons. I was actually sort of pushed out into the into the gunfire and the incident that happened here in October 2014. And uh, she told me she was like very affected by everything that had gone on. And it was, it was deeply disturbing to me. I, it, it deeply affected me. And uh, I remember... And so she decided to talk to friends and get some counseling in that. And she said one of her friends said to her a remark that really sort of hit home. And she said, you know, well, Michelle, this never would have happened if people weren't allowed to own guns in Canada or if there was stricter firearms legislation. And, you know, I really took that to heart. And this is why I went through the whole process of learning about how firearms are regulated in Canada, because as a legislator, I want So she reviewed all the regulations about gun ownership in Canada, and she came to sort of a surprising conclusion. She decided Canada had quite tight gun regulations, and not only that, she decided to go out and purchase her own handgun for target practice, and that made her go through the entire process which lasted almost a year, she said, between when she applied and when she'd finished all the, the background checks, the tests, and when she actually got her gun. She's become one of the most prominent advocates for gun ownership in Canada. It's, it's a very counterintuitive response for someone who, you know, uh, faced a life-or-death situation. Is she being taken seriously as an advocate in, in this role? What do people make of that? Well, she is being taken seriously, although certainly not everyone agrees with her. You will find in Canada that the gun owners, many of them tend to be rural residents, and that's in fact where the Conservative Party is also very strong. On the other side of the divide, though, are the mainly urban residents, and they're really against gun ownership. So they take her seriously, but they don't agree with her. Well, enacting uh, bans of that sort and even talk of a federal ban is something that certainly wouldn't get anywhere um, in America. What does the gun debate look like in Canada as compared to the states? Well, there are several important differences and then some parallels. Now, the differences are that the Canadian Constitution does not have any right to bear arms. The other thing is that comes up frequently in the American debate is this right to self-defense. In Canada, there is no right to self-defense using a gun. Now, the similarities are, in both places, you'll, you'll see this sort of rural-urban divide where farmers who live in isolated areas would like a, to have a gun, and not just for self-defense, of course, but to kill predators and pests. So they don't get really why the people in the cities are against all guns. Um, and as for the Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, where does he stand on the issue? He hasn't really disclosed exactly where he stands, and this is on the handgun ban. After the shooting in Toronto and the requests by the cities for handgun bans, he asked uh, one of his ministers to look into it. Now, that minister has been consulting uh, across Canada and will, at the end of those consultations, he'll make a recommendation to the government and then that's when we'll see what Mr. Trudeau really believes should be done. 
Right. Um, and there's a general election in, in Canada later this year. I, will, it, will it be a big campaign issue? Will that report come out before or the, the, the election or do we know? Guns will be part of the, the election debate in Canada. It very much depends what happens before then, as, as you mentioned, the report. So if the government makes a decision one way or another, that will raise the, the gun debate in prominence during the election campaign. So will, though, any other shooting that takes place. And I would say in Canada and the U.S., because every time there's a big incident in the U.S., that makes it into all the Canadian papers as well, and it revives the debate again. So if, unfortunately, there is another big shooting in the U.S. or Canada, then the campaign will feature gun rights for sure. In Britain, today is the deadline for businesses to report their annual gender pay gap measuring how much more men get paid than women do for equivalent work. Similar rules are already in place in Germany and France, and governments around the world are getting serious at tracking and tackling the disparity. In America, legislation to mandate pay gap reporting is tied up in the courts. One big factor in how much less women get paid, whether they've had children. What happens to pay packages when people become parents is quite different between what happens to fathers as opposed to what happens to mothers. Marie Seger is a data journalist at The Economist, and she's got a novel way of sharing her notes. So mothers are known to suffer from what we call the motherhood penalty, meaning their earnings decrease, for example, because they choose to work fewer hours or they choose to work not at all, but also because their earnings decrease because they choose to work different jobs. For example, they try to find a job that isn't quite as demanding and gives them more time for childcare, and that might mean taking a pay cut as well. And so what, what sort of conditions affect the size of the motherhood penalty? The size of the motherhood penalty differs in different countries. So Public policies generally affect the motherhood penalty quite a lot. For example, in Sweden, they have really good paternity leave. And the way it works there is that if fathers don't take the paternity leave, then it doesn't automatically go to the mother. They can only take it as a couple if the father takes it, which means that a lot of Swedish fathers actually take paternity leave. And then... Another thing is that studies have found that the motherhood penalty is bigger for mothers whose own mother was a stay-at-home mother when they were children. So it's kind of about both personal histories and, and public policy stuff. Yes, and I can show you these differences. Show me, you say? This node represents the average salary of a Swedish father-to-be one year before having a child. Each following lower node represents a drop of 1%. After five years, the average father's salary has gone back up to its pre-chart level. And beyond. And and so what about Swedish mothers? How does the, the motherhood penalty look for them? So in Sweden, after 10 years, a mother's salary goes from here to here. 
That's a drop of 27%. Which sounds like a lot. I mean, how does that compare to, to other countries that, that might have different policies? Well, British mothers earn 44% less than before they had a child. And mothers in my home country, Germany, are the most affected. Wow, so Germany really hits some low notes. Marie, thanks very much for sounding this out with us. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.